G'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I have a huge announcement to make. Now as you all know, I've been working on my brand new book called Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And I am super pumped to announce that it is now live on my website. It is live on Amazon. So please jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and grab a copy today. All proceeds from the sale of this book goes to charity. So remember to jump over to read goosens.com forward slash books and get your hands on one today. Now back into the show. I'm trying to coin a new phrase. It's called Nuru. And these are new gurus. These are people who weren't investing in real estate at all in the last recession, which is fine, but they're now telling people authoritatively that it's okay to overpay in for multifamily or other asset classes that it's different this time. And of course, if you've read Howard Marks or Warren Buffett or Ray Dalio, they will tell you it's not different this time. We're going through the same cycle that we always did before. And these gurus will, these new gurus will tell you that's not the case. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play. But you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to ReedGoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the hot seat, Paul Moore, co-founder of Wellings Capital. I first had Paul back on my show in episode 78, and I highly recommend everyone go back and listen to that episode as well to get a bit more understanding of Paul's background, um, but really excited to have him back on the show. For those people who don't know, Paul has had a very successful business career over the past 30 years. In the late 1990s, Paul was a finalist um, for the Ernest & Young Michigan's Entrepreneur of the Year for two years running. He also started and sold many businesses, including a staffing company. Throughout recent years, Paul has entered the real estate sector where he's flipped over 50 homes, 25 high-end waterfront lots, appeared on HGTV's House Hunters, rehabbed and managed rental portfolios, built a number of new homes, developed a subdivision, and started and successfully started two online real estate marketing firms. He's also completed three successful developments, including the development of a Hyatt Hotel and a very successful multifamily project. Uh, which led him into the commercial multifamily arena. Paul is also the author of The Perfect Investment, Creating Enduring Wealth for, for the Historical Shift into Multifamily Housing, uh, which was released back in 2016. And to top it all off, Paul is the co-host of the Wealth Building Podcast called How to Lose Your Money. And it is fe- he's also a featured guest on numerous other podcasts, obviously including mine. And he's a, he's a big blogger on Bigger Pockets. So, you can understand why I've got him back on the show. So I'm really pumped and excited to have him back. Enough out of me. Let's get him out of here. G'day, Paul. Welcome back to the show, mate. How you doing? Hey, Reed. It's great to be here. Thanks. Mate, my pleasure. So um, 
I, you know, for those people who, who tuning in or, you know, haven't listened to episode 78, I, as I said, I encourage people to go back and do that. But for those people who are too lazy to do that, do you want to quickly give us a, a rundown or, or I should ask, how'd you make your first ever dollar as a kid? First dollar as a kid, gosh, I did so many entrepreneurial things as a kid. Uh, one of the things that stands out though is I was in college and I noticed that uh, about 75, 80% of the kids didn't go home for Easter because they were like around the East Coast and our college was in Ohio. And so I got my hands on a mailing list of all the kids' parents at the whole school. It was only an 1,100 person liberal arts school. And, um, I got them to print me at no charge a mailing, like labels of every parent's uh, mailing address. And I mailed them this letter saying, hey, your kid's not going to come home from e for Easter, but you can bring Easter to your son or daughter. And we basically gave them two options to order a large, uh, or excuse me, a medium size or a large Easter basket. And then we delivered those to their kids' doors with a personalized note that they mailed back to us with their check. Uh, and a huge number, a percentage of the college um, actually ordered these Easter baskets. And it was a great time. And we made a whopping probably $500 in a couple of days. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really interesting. That's a, it, it was before online marketing, I take it. And, and you know, trusting someone would send you back a check <laughs> when you send them the, 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 the product because you, yeah. you're parting away with the product. And you have no recourse if, well, they didn't send me the check. Did, did any of that happen? <laughs> no, no, we had, we got all the checks and we got them deposited, you know, a couple of weeks before Easter so we could make our orders. That's awesome, mate. Well, you know, I had you on about a year and a half ago. What has been happening in the last 18 months that you want to bring us up to speed on? You know, I got real, uh, I got real frustrated, Reed, with, um, we, we, have failed. Our company, Wellings Capital, has failed in acquisition strategy. We did not have a great acquisitions strategy or team like you do. And uh, we have not been able to uncover off-market deals and deals that, you know, we wanted to invest in the multifamily arena. And I got somewhat frustrated with that. And so rather than uh, continue that beating our head against the wall, we decided to expand out to include, in addition to multifamily, we decide to also start investing in self-storage and mobile home parks. And I have been shocked at the opportunities uh, because of the fragmented market in self-storage and mobile home parks. Even though they're very heated up as well, uh, we have found that there are many more mom and pop operators as a percentage of the total ownership group. And uh, we've been able to find deals that are performing really, really well. So what we've done after doing a couple of test runs in 2018, uh, this year we decided to start two funds. We have Wellings Growth Fund One, which we're targeting a 19% total annual return, and Wellings Income Fund One, which we're targeting a 15% total annual return. The Income Fund has income and appreciation, and the Growth Fund has a pure appreciation play. It's ground up development and steep value adds. Mostly doing self-storage, but we're also doing mobile home parks and we're including multifamily if and when we can find a deal that makes sense. It's, um, it's very interesting because, you know, you and I have been masterminding uh, for those people who don't know. We have a secret mastermind, which is not so secret anymore. Uh, we get on a monthly call and, you know, we've been um, talking shop and how over the last 18 months and that's, you know, that mastermind has been going probably for a couple of years now, but you know, as we've been, as you've been growing as a business, um, it's interesting to hear how you've pivoted away from trying to be an owner operator, um, which is really where your background was before, you know, where you, you flipped all your houses and you manage rental properties and you've done ground up construction and to go into more of the raising capital side. It's tell talk to me a little bit about that and that sort of, aha moment which you realized you know maybe this space the operate the owner operation space wasn't for you and purely just the you know connecting equity with good Kraken deals you know when I look back over my history I realized that you know when I was do, flipping those homes I wasn't the on-site manager that I just wasn't really good at that and when I was building I actually hired a general contractor and when I was flipping waterfront lots, I hired a guy to go out and find the lots. And then I was kind of the marketing mastermind, the investor relations guy. And so I just realized that was more my speed 
I also spent a, a you know a good portion of the last couple of years reading and rereading the book called The One Thing, which you're very familiar with from Gary Keller in the very town that you are in right now in Austin, Texas. And uh, Gary Keller and Jay Papazon convinced me that I needed to narrow down my focus, not just to real estate, not just to commercial real estate, not just to one or two asset classes, but to one function. And that would be raising money, managing money. And, um, you know, I guess second, uh, in addition to that, you know, finding great operators to partner with. So we decided to do that. We decided that these operators who had been through the last recession or two successfully, who knew these asset classes, who had the acquisition pipelines that we didn't, that we, we would be better off linking our investors to them through setting up this fund. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so true. Like even for myself, um, you know, go, trying to break into being an international person, trying to break into a new market, I had to find someone in, in my own business to partner with who would boots on the ground, who could give me that edge to find those off-market deals because um, in any business, whether it be that you realize that your business core skills are not, say, unearthing great deals or, you know, you know shaking the tree and seeing what apples fall off and, and understanding that you've got to lean into what you are good at. And it sounds like you've really found that, that niche of, you know, connecting capital with, um, with, with good operators. And really it also opens up, you know, not just, you know, focusing on one or two markets, but the whole country, right. And, and different asset classes. So it becomes more of a smorgasbord for your investors to come and pick and choose where they want to place their money. So, um, so, so it's a really, really interesting, but the whole concept of today's show, it's, a, it's, it's part one of a two part series talking in and around about, you know, readjusting investors' expectations in and around commercial real estate. And before we, do, you know, before we dive in, I really want to get your two cents on how you've transitioned from multifamily, what you've seen in the multifamily space, why it's so hot, and then why you've transitioned into other spaces in the commercial industry, um, and, and truly from a value add point of view. Yeah, you know, we as we observe the multifamily industry, the multifamily space. Uh, I've noticed about seven or eight different reasons that I think multifamily is overheated. And I would invite you, Reed, to interrupt me and interject on any of these or even disagree. Um, uh, That's but a hot point of the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So um, a lot of these start with an I for some reason. I didn't plan it that way, but... Uh, number one would be international investors. Now, that's a lot of your audience, I think. And that's great. I actually have a friend in China who's been raising money for commercial real estate deals in the US from China. And he only raises like 20 million and up. Like I think this typical raise is $100 million for either a mall or hotel or large multifamily. In fact, he did one near you in LA uh, that's involved that you know, that's uh, ground up that he's working on right now. I think he put 220, $220 million in that, or maybe it was $220 million total deal uh, near LA. But um, anyway, he said that some of his investors were so concerned about the Chinese currency relative to the US dollar that they would literally be willing to invest with a zero return at a zero cap rate just to get their money out of their currency into the US dollar. Now, Reed, how can I? How can we compete with that? How are we going to compete with somebody who's willing to go for a zero return? I mean, they're overpaying intentionally, or they're you know willingly, I should say. I don't know how to compete with that kind of thing. So, international money, some international money. I'm surely not your listeners, but some international money, I think, is you know overpaying for assets. And I'll, I'll add with that just from my my experience depend it really is market dependent and and most i'm saying i don't have the statistics on it but i'd love to see if you ever you know encourage listeners to reach out if they have any statistics on any of this sort of stuff is in my you know four five six years seven years being in the united states i see a lot of international investors flock to the you know destination cities la chicago san francisco new york um and not necessarily in secondary markets like san antonio dallas um, where it's still American-based operators, but yet you are seeing that transit, you know, the, the bleed of affordability in those major cities bleeding over into these other cities that are, you know, producing growth. And I'm here in Austin, Texas this week, and, you know, this city's experienced massive growth in the last 20 years. But, 
you know, I would love to see the statistic of how many people are bidding on, you know, let's call it tier two, tier two investments, multifamily self-storage who, who are driving up that price. But, but, I, but I definitely hear you when you say international folks have a different um, uh, need and want with their capital and so they can make, potentially overpay for it and that, that, could, that, that is frothing up the market a little bit. But I would also like to see the, the stats on that and see how many people are actually competing out of, you know, say you call it a 200-unit um, you know, multifamily deal, how many of those offers are from true international folks who you want to pay 0% you know, return? money so uh, I, I it was just more of a caveat slash other that's side good. of the coin. so yeah keep going but next one good well that i mean that leads me to my very next point and that's the next eye and that's institutional investors now reed you know that institutional investors typically in the past wanted to be in boston new york uh san francisco la chicago you know that generally the coastal cities including the north coast and uh they um they didn't generally shunned you know uh, even large secondary cities like Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, etc., um, and they certainly avoided tertiary cities like Kansas City, Omaha, and Lexington, Kentucky. But now they're chasing yield, and so these institutional buyers are chasing yield. They're they're going from the coast in toward the center of the country. Number one, they're going from larger to smaller investments, like you know they going down from a 500 unit to maybe in the hundreds. Number three, they're going from fully stabilized to maybe semi-stabilized deals. Number four, they're going from brand new or new, almost new assets into older assets. And number five, they're going for uh, you know lower classes. You know where they might have been in class A, now they might be going to class B. I don't know if they're going to class C, but they might. And the point is these institutional investors who are willing to tolerate a lower yield in general, they're used to a lower yield, are hard to compete with. And so I think that as they get into the Austin markets and the San Antonio markets and Lexington, Kentucky, it's very hard to compete with these folks because they're used to a lower yield, but they've got to place their money somewhere. And sometimes they're willing to overpay a little just to get a, you know, to get in something with their investors' money. What do you think of that? Yeah, look, I again goes back to the source, the use of capital, and their and their capital's expectation. Um, I will say that on a class B, class C deal, um, where there's a little bit of hair on the bone, they will stick well clear of it because they just can't. They don't have. They're, they're, they're maybe too big out in New York or LA, and it's too too much red tape. Um, where that's where the opportunity for investors like yourself and I can come in and snag them. Um, and so I think, yes, there is that, that risk. Um, but in, in saying that, you know, we are getting a lot of offers on our portfolio right now because we have come in and done the work, you know, um, where they're happy at a 4 and 5% returns to their investors um, but we've done the hard yards, and so the, 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 it's, we've steered the ship in the right direction. So they're they're coming to now look at our, that that ship, and they know for the next ten to twenty years that that's going to continue to grow. And real estate is a long term game, and probably something we'll talk about later on the show. Um, but they understand the the, the value of that long term play rather than a, a quick buck that a lot of people have been making in the last you know call it five to seven years, pretty much since the recession. But I, I definitely agree with you that. Um, it is the goes back to your first eye, the international. It's it's your capital's expectation on returns, and if you have lower expectations and deals pencil, obviously more aggressive type of offers uh, and purchase prices, which may not necessarily suit the investor profile that we have. You and I, you know, readily chase. So right, yeah. yeah. So the next one is a little less significant, and that would be IRA money. Now there's a record amount of IRA and self-directed 401k money coming into commercial real estate. And for some reason, I've noticed that some IRA investors are a little less critical. They're a little more willing to take risk. They're a little more willing to overpay. They feel like it's not, you know, this is money that's already in an IRA and they don't feel like it's as critical to make great decisions, which is unfortunate, but it seems to be true. So that's the third one. The fourth one is not really an I, it's 1031 money. And of course, we all know that there's a record amount of 1031 exchange money that is making money on other deals and then coming in 
to invest in uh, new deals with, that they're exchanging into. And sometimes, and I think legitimately so, some 1031 exchange investors are in a hurry and they're willing to overpay rather than pay Uncle Sam. And so I think that is something that we've seen happen as well to drive the price up. Uh, number five is tax reform. In uh, November of 2017, a survey I said uh, for the National Real Estate Investor Association, I, I read a survey that said something like 52% of people thought uh, multifamily had peaked and it was uh, on its way to softening. And then tax reform hit in December uh, 17, a month later. And then in January, another survey said that only like 28% of people thought multifamily had peaked. And of course, that's what we saw. As it looked like it was softening in late 2017, it really didn't. And it's just gone gangbusters again because of the wonderful tax benefits uh, generated by Congress and the commercial real estate investor in the Oval Office. And so we're very thankful for that. Number six, the Nuru effect. Now, Reed, I'm hoping you're going to help me here. I'm trying to coin a new phrase. It's called Nuru. And these are new gurus. These are people who weren't investing in real estate at all in the last recession, which is fine, but they're now telling people authoritatively that it's okay to overpay in for multifamily or other asset classes, that it's different this time. And of course, if you've read Howard Marks or Warren Buffett or Ray Dalio, they will tell you it's not different this time. We're going through the same cycle that we always did before. And these gurus will, these new rules will tell you that's not the case. And that's just not true. I, I, I was at a Miami conference, Reed, where a guy stood up on stage. He was a multifamily guru. I mean, he's world famous, not just nationally, world famous. And I was delighted when he came on stage. He wasn't on the schedule. And he said, hey, just get into multifamily, spend as much as you need to. It's okay to overpay, just get in. And I thought he was joking. He wasn't joking. He was dead serious. And that leads me to my seventh and last reason I think multifamily might be overheated and other commercial real estate's overheated, and that's wolves in sheep's clothing. These are new roos who have taken it to another level. These are people who are intentionally misleading their investors, and they're trying to earn acquisition fees, asset management fees, broker commissions, whether the investor profits or not, they will. Don't yep. be a victim. Yep. No, I think the fantastic summary of, of different eyes and new roos. I love that. I love that term new roos. I think it's a really, um, I think it's really appropriate in t today's world. Um, my two cents on it, because you know, this, 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 this series is about a more of a conversation, um, is, is, is twofold. So, so you want, I want to just quickly rewind to what you said, 1031 and an IRA money and why the investor psychology is a little bit different. So first and foremost, IRA investors, like all IRA, are there for your retirement. And so that could be in 20, 30, 40 years time. Again, time value of money and people are willing to overpay now knowing that if they're going to be in a deal for an extremely long time, and I'm talking about more than 10 years, then you know inevitably it's going to your your the, the value of the asset's going to go up in, in in specifically multifamily and why is that well because you know cost of housing is going up affordability uh, is a big issue these flight from the you know what we spoke about earlier from the, the coastal cities into the interior of the country where it is more affordable but even those countries you know like like Austin and those cities are very more uh, are growing. I think we're also in a very much a renter, um, renter population. People are wanting to live in and around urban cores and be close to downtowns and hip places and, and millennials aren't buying as much as, as maybe the baby boomers were. And, and the way in which we urban plan is also changing. So, you know, the whole idea when coming to America, I'm a structural engineer, I studied a lot with, with urban planners, you know, you will particularly places like Texas and LA, they just build a highway into the middle of nowhere and start a suburb. And now that suburb's got to drive 40 minutes to work. And then they drive another 40 minutes to get to, you know, social settings and stuff like that. People are really wanting and valuing um, being close in and around their workspace. And that's obviously driving up um, uh, rent. So, you know, my, my question to you, Paul, is what does that mean for long-term multifamily? And, and where do you still find value? 
and 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 in my two cents, and I want your your thought on this, is that when you look at more urban infill spaces, uh, like where the cap rates are a little bit more compressed, but you have the certainty of of of, of long term growth, and I'm not talking about the next two to three years. I'm talking about 10, 15, 20 years time where rents are going to continue to steadily go up. And, and my, my sentiment is that multifamily is still a very attractive space for investors. Um, but, but what we are seeing is that what the typical returns from three, four years ago where you're doubling your money in three years, you're going back to more of the traditional, you're probably going to double your money in 10 years. And that's still okay. That's still, you put a million dollars in today and you double it to $2 million in 10 years time. Like coming from Australia, that's a really good return. And, and for, for my investors who have expected 16 and 17% returns, it's now the new game is a 16, 17% return is now a 12 or 13% return. And deals are still penciling at that, my ad. Um, but I still think, and I want your opinion, Paul, on what, that sort of, you know, the shift of the way in which we live, the way in which we run our lives, the, the affordability aspect of it, and then tie that in with long-term growth of wealth and capital preservation, because that's essentially what the IRA people are doing. It's what the international folks are doing. It's what the institutional funds are doing. It's what 1031 exchanges people are doing. They're, they're looking for wealth preservation over the long term. And, and I think personally still think multifamily is still really, really good investment vehicle for that for the next 10 to 15, 20 years time. What do you think? Yeah. You know, I actually, uh, somebody asked me the other day, they said, you love self storage and you love mobile home parks, but you wrote a book called the perfect investment on multifamily. Uh, what gives? (laughs) And I said, well, I said the demographics driving multifamily are solid. And I'll circle back to that in a second read (laughs) if you ask me, but um, I, I said, you know, if I had a, a million dollars and I had to tie it up for a hundred years into one asset, I would go with multifamily. I mean, hey, I don't know what's going to happen in self-storage over, you know, decades. There may be all kinds of new automated services, or there may be a whole mood shift among millennials and Gen Z that is downsizing dramatically and getting rid of all their stuff. But I think the apartments that are being built today in downtown Austin are still going to be apartments 100 years from now, no matter what shifts there are in technology. Don't, don't right. you agree? No, 100%. And I think you, you've hit the nail on the head because you look at, and I'm just going to quickly sidestep, like I'm, I'm in an Airbnb right now. It's maybe 500 square feet. It's a studio this would rent for three thousand dollars a month, you know, um, and and the way in which you, we're building new construction, you know, micro units are now becoming a thing. These co living units where you have sort of, you know, your your own bedroom and stuff, uh, and but you share a living space with other people um, because real estate's tight to build. It costs a lot to build, so developers are becoming more. Um, they're trying to squeeze every. Uh, juice out of the, the lemon, so to speak. Um, and, and, and I completely agree with you that in 100 years' time, these urban infill downtown locations are still going to be desirable, are still going to be where people want to live. And the, the cost, and, and my, might I add, is that somewhere like Austin is a prime example. It is transitioning from a tier two city into a tier one city. Now, I've talked a lot about it on the show tier one and tier two, tier ones being the New York, San Francisco destination cities. Tier two being, you know, Dallas, Houston, North Car- uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, where they're not necessarily on the map, but like Denver is also another great example. They're shifting into these tier ones where they're internationally renowned. They're on the map. You know, there's direct flights in and out of London straight from Austin right now twice a week. You know, they're on the map and they're now transitioning into markets that smell and look like a Los Angeles or a New York. And you can't forget that growth either. So with all that being said, I, I, I completely agree with your, your, your sentiment of that. So what, I guess the question now naturally is, well, then what, what, what do you do if you're, you're, you're an investor, you know, and moving forward, how do you, how do you find a crack and deal out there? And, and is it just my, the expectation of investors that needs to, to shift, right? Well, yeah. I mean, okay. So I'm going through Warren Buffett's biography right now. And if you would have invested a thousand dollars with Warren Buffett in 1957, which was his, uh, you know, his original investors in 1957, that was worth something like 8 million 
by the time, by the mid nineties. And I could be off on that, but I mean, it's, it's definitely in the millions, a thousand dollars into the millions. And you know, so Warren Buffett, the most legendary investor of our time, maybe of all time, you know, he's had about an 18% annual total return. I've I've heard 20% as well. So somewhere 18 to 20%. Now let's think for a minute. 18 to 20% from the most legendary investor of all time, average over 50, 55 years, however you want to gauge it. You know, he's been with Berkshire Hathaway just a little over 50 uh, years. And so, um, if if he has averaged 18 to 20%, why do we think we should expect on an average deal 20% every, you know, every year, every deal? I or mean, straight, or straight out of the gate, you know, right. Or straight out of the gate. Right. And so, I mean, I think our expectations and I mean, our as a whole uh, have just been inflated by this rising tide. I mean, we've had a massive cap rate compression mm-hmm. in the U.S. Now, I just read Howard Marks, uh, Mastering the Market Cycles, and he says that if you think it's different this time, you are sorely mistaken. It's not different this time. There's always going to be cycles because there's always going to be human psychology involved in investing. And so there's always going to be ups, always going to be downs. No technology is going to change that. My question, though, is if if it used to be cycling around, let's say a 9% cap rate, let's say it went from eight, let's say it went from around a median of nine. So it went from eight to 10. I just read an article from in a self storage, uh, a self storage article from the nineties the other day and just to, to enjoy it. And it was saying, yeah, you can expect to pay about a 10% cap rate. And I thought it was just so strange, but anyway, if it used to cycle around a nine, let's say eight to 10, now, my question to you, Reed, and to the listeners is to consider this. Is it possible that the, even though there always will be cycles, I'll never deny that, is it possible that the new normal is more like six instead of eight or nine? Is it possible our cycles will go around a median of maybe six? Maybe it'll go from five to seven now in normal cities. And, of course, gateway cities like L.A. are different. But... Um, what do you think? I think the answer is I think the answer is one hundred percent yes. Um, you also have to remember cap rate is a measure of risk. Now you, you're speaking about a nine and a ten percent cap rate. Even in the multifamily space of nine to ten percent cap rate, you're, that's probably in a tertiary market, which is very um, uh, marginal against you know and affected by job creation, right? And it has maybe one major employer. You, you, yes, I do agree that urban infills like the Austins, maybe 20 years ago, Austin probably would have been, you know, and I'm talking downtown Austin, not not the, not the fringes, eight to 7%. And over the last 20 years, it's compressed to now it's like less than five. Do I think it's going to go back to eight or nine? Hell no, because it's transitioned into that tier one category that I said before. So may it, may it soften? And do I think we're in a softening period now? And just as a quick caveat, I've had more brokers reach out to me in the last six weeks than I've ever had in my entire life in investing, which gives me, and we've underwritten 30, 40, 50 deals this year, and I haven't closed on one yet because it's just not penciling. And you know, from our, my mastermind group that with, with Jonathan Toomley in there and Michael Blanc and you know jo- Jonathan Cohen is a really good, good friend of mine. No one's, you know, it's very hard to find deals. So do I think that we are going to have maybe a small cap rate expansion? Yes, I do. I don't think it's going to be drastic swings of 200 bips or 300 bips. I think it's more right. going to be like 50 to 100. Um, so, yeah, so go ahead. So my question is why, what do you, I, I got two questions for you. Number one, why, uh, what does the record number of brokers reaching out to you mean to you let's start with yeah. that I'm yeah I, I, good, good, good. and i don't want to flip this around to being an interview interview to me but it's it's a it's it's it means that sellers expectations are too high and and go back to my statement i said before i've got four analysts working for me crunching between two to three deals a week and you know we've been close on a couple of deals um but it's not it's so i should also say that the investor expectation i've been trying to hit hasn't been there, hasn't been the plus 15% IRR over five years, which is typically what, you know, my, my threshold for investors. 
and this is the whole reason we're doing this, this podcast. The, now that you know investors have um, this this expectation of fifteen plus and doubling monies in five to seven years time, you know people are trying to sell that story still, and people are saying, well, let's not know that. You know, I've seen value add stuff trade at like nineteen eighties trade less than a five cap in San Antonio and Dallas, and I'm just like, I'm thinking, gosh, you're up to lunch. Um, now, do I think it's ever going to get back to a six and a half or a seven percent cap rate? The market has to shift drastically. Um, people have got to be moving out of a city for that sort of stuff to happen. But I do think rents will soften a little bit in the in the near future, and the the sort of four, five, six percent year on year rental growth is maybe not there in say San Antonio or Dallas. So you've got to underwrite to maybe more of like a two to three percent rental growth. Um, but back to your, your original questions, like why, you know, what does that mean to me? It indicates that people are, are wanting way too much for, for what they've got. Um, and, and that we're starting to see a shift in cap rates from, you know, we picked up an asset in Austin 2002 build for five and a half cap, you know, where other things are trading for less than a five cap. So we're already starting to see shifting back the other way. I just don't think, I think there's a ceiling there um, and brokers are trying to, match investors expectations uh, sorry sellers expectations and that me but yet yeah, buyers are not willing to pay for that and and so hence it comes down to cap rate they you know they might be you know they, they want to sell it at a 4.9 cap but you know buyers are willing to to, to buy it at you know a 5.5 or 5.75 you know like a spread of 70 basis points so you know it's, it's essentially it's the market responding saying go go pound sand i don't really care you know, what what your BOV is for some seller to try and get you know, the commission, um, you go jump in the lake. Now, now the, the follow-up question, and I want to ask you this, is as you evaluate, like to, to me, you have to look for that growth co- corridors in, in my mind, but you also have to look for true value add. And what do I mean by true value add? I, like you have to know what rents are going for in your market you have to know how much new construction is coming to market and you have to understand that if you're buying something where there's a, a bit of a, a spread by doing renovations or putting you know, new granite in or whatever that might be, new kitchens, um, and, and if there's a healthy three-figure, you know, $100, $150 bumps, then, then that's on top of a 3% growth, then that's not a bad investment in my mind. And, and again, it goes back to, well, I'm trying to hit this 15%, but maybe... A twelve, the new fifteen to seventeen percent, the new norm is twelve to thirteen, and and a twelve to thirteen over five years is still a bloody good return if you're not lifting a finger. And it goes back to that IRA and, and expect investor expectation of like, we want all this stuff straight out of the gate, we want cash flow at eight percent straight out. Of the gate. It, we're not in that world anymore, guys, and 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 investors need to adjust their expectations and understand that these you're not in. We've had a, we've been in a very frothy market of people hitting these great quote unquote home runs through the market, saving them and investors now expect, expecting this double digit return in a very short period of time. Just going back to, okay, it may be, maybe it's two or three years where there's not a lot of cash flow out of the gate, but over a seven to 10 year hold, it's going to, you know, you look at, you model that out and, and, and with very moderate growth and a bit of a bit of a bump every um, with, with your, with renovations, you can hit, Six, seven, eight, nine percent cash on cash in years six, seven, eight, nine, and double your money over ten. That's a still a really solid return, and it goes back to that conversation with the IRA. If I have a million dollars in my IRA, I'm not going to see it for twenty years. Does it matter if I don't get any money straight out of the gate? And I just know that over time, in a really strong growth market like Austin or Dallas or um, you know Charlotte, North Carolina, that over the long term, we are, you're going to see really good equity multiple. Do you not agree with that? No, I completely agree with that. I really do. And I think I love everything you're saying. And uh, uh, I, I want to throw a question back to both of us. And that is, okay, uh, improve it. I mean, I, I agree with you, but prove it. Why do you think, why do we think there is a permanent adjustment, a permanent downshift in the cap rate? What, what are some evidence we have for that? And I'll start. I don't want to make this, you know, I don't want to turn it over on you, like you said. But number one, I think that with the, in the new uh, age of investing there, I mean, did we, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, working with investors in the eighties and nineties, but were there international investors? Were there Chinese, Australian, oh. 
New cool. Zealand, Indian investors investing commonly in small uh, to medium sized deals no. in the US? No, no way. No way. And no so way. number one, so isn't, isn't it true, and, and I've talked to investors in Europe, uh, China, New Zealand, Australia, and Israel, and all of them have said that their normal cap rates are still compressed more than ours are at our record compression. 100%. So it seems to me that when they have come into the market, which is wonderful, I'm glad they're all here, it seems to me that that's one of the reasons it's permanently compressed. Yep. The second reason I would throw out is uh, the popularity of real estate investing, specifically commercial real estate investing, is at an all-time high. Uh, the Jobs Act, which was passed in, was it 2012 or 13? Uh, it opened the door to crowdfunding and just a massive popularity. I mean, bigger pockets went from you know a handful of subscribers up to over a million now. And I just think that with podcasts and, and books and training and everything else out there, that real estate investing is at an all-time popular high. I mean, HGTV is driving people to want to be Chip and Joanna Gaines Jr. And then they realize they can do better in large-scale multifamily or self-storage. And they jump over to that, which I see every week. Um, those are three reasons I would give for why this is probably the new normal. What do you think? I I will. I also 100% agree. I also want to throw out there from a Western world, and I'm talking purely about the Western worlds. Um, US is very is extremely unique in my opinion, and and, what, and I'm going to explain why. Australia has the same landmass as mainland United States, excluding Alaska. We can only inhabit about 18% of our land because it's an arid country. It's desert. So you're confined to your landlocked. You're confined to the cities. You're confined to the East Coast, and it drives up prices. Plus, we have a we have one tenth of the not even one tenth of the population of the United States. So that means you're you don't and and the lending is not there. There's there's many factors, but just let's talk about population and and landmass. In the United States, you have three hundred fifty million ish people. Right? You can inhabit north, south, east, west. You can have these tier one markets, but because of the population, you drive these smaller pockets of the Midwest type, you know, we're more affordable. And that's always historically been true for the United States. Other Western countries like Australia, England has a little bit of it. Canada has maybe a little bit of it, but again, population wise, you're just not there from a Western point of view. So it doesn't drive these more affordable tier two, tier three suburbs where you can find a more expanded cap rate and more yield. Um, like I could not go out and find a cash flowing asset in Australia. I, I, you, you can't even find multifamily full stock you know, on a large scale in Australia. So, and we won't get into that conversation, but just think about that for a second, just from a population and, and, and the landmass. The United States is still very unique if I compare it to other Western worlds. And that is still very attractive to a lot of investors and back to your um, international investors, I should say, and back to your point of, Landmass, you look at Israel, you, you mentioned all the countries, Australia, Canada, Israel, Europe, very small defined countries in, in with, with, with medium to large populations, but the United States has this sort of unique, you know, barring Canada, where Canada's also got a lot of land and, and, and Australia's a lot of land, but we just don't have the population. We're not, we're not growing that rapidly. So you're not forcing infrastructure to move and create new cities in, in these tier two cities and you know less cap um expanded cap rates so there, there is and, and to your point in australia we've got cap rates in the one and two percent and that's been like that for decades you know in one Sydney, to two one to two percent and you go to sydney and these are tier one cities right these are tier one brisbane sydney perth you may be able to find a, a, a two to a three and maybe brisbane or adelaide or something like that in commercial but again the way in which um the lending is it's 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 a completely different ballpark, so you've got to take that into consideration. But to your point, the 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 four to five or six percent cap rates in tier two markets in the United States to an international investor is still a bloody good return. And and so, like like you think of insurance, right? Over the last thirty years, insurance hasn't gone down; <laughs> it's gone up, right? Rent's gone up, but the whole cost of living's gone up. My my, my cost of just the the um, my, my cost of goods is, it, it consistently goes up, 
and that's the same as what rent is going to go. And, and you know, we, we can also talk about job growth and, um, you know, wage growth and all that sort of stuff. Um, but to your original point is like, yeah, the cap rates in these T2 markets are still really attractive to international investors. It's still really attractive just in general. Um, if you can keep between 100 basis points between your cap rate in the market and your interest rates, then you're going to get a bit of cash flow. And then over a longer period of hold, you, you know, out of the gate, it might be a little bit slow, but over a long period of time, you're going to look, you look at year three, year four, year five cap rate, you know, on your NOI divided by your purchase price you're going to be back at your 7 or 8%. And that's something that I encourage a lot of people to do when you're underwriting deals. Look, don't look at year one going in cap rate. You know, obviously look at it, but because you don't want to be negative and, and be paying, you have an interest rate that's higher than your cap rate. And that means you, you're actually pouring money into your deal. But look at your year three or year four cap rates, the NOI divided by your purchase price. And I bet you you'll be in your 6 to 7% cap rates on, on multifamily. Um, and when you look at, and so then it goes back to the investor expectation. Oh, I want this straight out of the gate, 8% pref and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, it's not happening. You're going to get one, two, 3% for the, for a couple of years. And then it's going to boom. It's going to go up like an exponential curve. And you need, investors need to understand that you're not in the real estate game to get rich quick. You're in the, it's get rich slow. And people wholeheartedly, in my, in my opinion, forget that they throw it out the window and it's just like, oh, I'm, uh, we got these returns three years ago. Why aren't we getting them anymore? We were in a different, different market. Um, so anyway, thoughts on that? What do you think? No, I completely agree. And um, I, I think that it, it's completely realistic to buy something at a, a lower cap rate uh, that you have a really clear path to improving and, and operating at a higher you know, rate of return. And um we see that in self-storage, you know, self-storage is heated up just like multifamily has. A lot of people have gone from multifamily only into adding self-storage into the portfolios. And, you know, it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to tell an investor, Hey, we're buying this at a 3% cap rate, but wait till year two, because when we add all these value adds on, it should be up to a seven and in year four, it could be up to a 10. And there is literally those type of deals out there in uh, self-storage because it's a mom and pop owned fragmented industry. And there are great, great opportunities to dramatically grow income. Uh, uh, and I think, I think what we're saying is be bloody patient, right? <laughs> be patient. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So Paul, you've had a lot of experience um, and we're talking a little bit in the green room before we press record here about the seller versus buyer expectations in the single, you know, the resi space in the single family side. How do you see that transitioning into the commercial side these days? You know, I was um, working, uh, had a, a, a real estate website at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia and still own that passively. And um, it, uh, it, in 2004, uh, three, four, five, six, you know, there were people making, you know, offers sight unseen. There were multiple bids on deals. People were bidding stuff up. I mean, we saw this. I'm, I know you saw this in LA and New York where you've been as well. And, um, and then when it turned down, there was this time lapse. There was this time frame when basically buyers, uh, excuse me, sellers still thought they should get what they would have got. Let's say it was a $1.2 million house in 2003 that they paid 1.54 in 2006 and they expected it to be on the same trajectory, you know, selling for let's say 1.8 million in 2008, but they weren't able to see the truth that it had dramatically softened by then. And the numbers were back down to 2004 or even 2000 numbers before this, you know, mess was over. And there was this lull, this time frame where sellers believed one thing and buyers were saying another. And guess who won? The buyer. Yeah. And in this case, I think the similarity is with commercial real estate. You know, the, um, I, I think the, there's a tension between sellers and buyers, which you already covered really well. But I think there's also a tension that's kind of similar between, invest, between syndicators and investors. And in this case, you know, the syndicators are going to be continuing to do deals 
And investors may say, hey, where's that 20% total annual return? Where am I, how am I going to double my money in four to six years? Well, we might just say, look, go find something else. We're sorry. You're not going to be able to do that anymore. And um, the syndicators, I mean, that are doing these deals are going to have to say, I mean, they're just going to have to convince the investors, you know, that they're not going to get those numbers anymore. The, the, the investors in this scenario are kind of similar to the sellers going into a down market. Right. And I think you also got to keep in mind what is a good return? Uh, what is, where is a good place to have capital preservation over the long term? Multifamily, commercial, asset self-storage. Um, and, and, and what is going to be your downside risk when a, when a recession does hit? Uh, and we'll talk, and I'll, that'll be the last question I'll ask you before, because I, wanna, I do want to wrap up the show because we've been talking for you know, a very long time and I want to respect your time. But one comment I want to say is that um, the, 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 the investor expectation needs to understand also the risk-adjusted expectation. So if you're going to invest in a Austin versus a, say, Kyle, Texas, which is a really tertiary market, or Galveston, Texas, um, you can expect a higher return, but over but but there's more market potentials and fluctuations and risks that could come into play, and so your money is at more risk over a long period of time rather than investing, say, in something like Austin or Dallas or uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, or um, something like that. So you have to then understand well, what's the risk of my money going kaput and 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 vanishing in over overnight, uh, and we, you know. You, you go and invest in the stock market if you want that. <laughs> and that's, you know, a whole nother thing. But you have to understand the type of debt you put on the property. You're not over leveraged. Uh, you, you're investing for the long term. Inve in, you know, you're investing in, in, in better growth markets. So your returns are going to be less. And, but you are going to have more stable equity preservation over the long term. And that is what people fail to wake up to. And, and I, you, know, you and I are here today to talk about that and so what, what what do you think about that well i mean let's let's be honest here it's it's easy for us as small to mid-sized players to think that we're smarter than those big exactly. institutions who yep. have been around since the 1800s or whatever but let's be honest these reits and these institutionals are real smart they've got hundreds of people with millions of dollars worth of software and they're not dumb and they've known what you just said for a very long time. There's a reason they were paying 4% cap rates in Boston when the rest of us were chasing, you know, 7% cap rates in Kansas City, right? And so they, they must know something. And they, you know, they, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously some of them fail over time, but in general, that's the way they've been thinking for a long time. And that's sort of the way people like Buffett thinks as well. And I think they've done better than most average investors out there wouldn't you think no well if you back to your example that you you know not what 1957 a thousand dollars and now it's worth a couple of million bucks in the mid 90s that's 40 years later mm -hmm. 40 years. right now i get the one big thing i want to say is that you can eat cash flow you can't eat irr and so if you're that investor and, and, and i had an interesting conversation with with my business partner the other day it's like you know someone who invests a hundred thousand dollars into a deal is is a seven percent? So say we give a seven percent pref. Is seven grand really going to change your life on a year to year basis, or is the fact that you're going to multiple your money over five to ten years more important to you? Like, is seven grand really changing the needle that much? And and, and when you ask yourself that type of question, and you're okay to say, well, I'm putting this hundred grand, or even it's a half a million bucks, and that's still a lot of money to most people. But it's there. It's going to. It's a nest egg, and it's growing over the long term. And it's in it, real estate is the only investment that has all four ways of making money, appreciation, depreciation, cash flow, and amortization. You can't find that anywhere else. That's why it's so popular. But you also then have to ask yourself, well, if I'm putting in 100, 200 grand and, you know, okay, I'm only getting three or 4% in the first couple of years, but I know in five, seven, eight years time, that's going to double. That's, you know, I've got a lot more investors coming to me now saying, what's my equity multiple over five, over five to 10 years rather than what's my cash flow straight out of the gate? Because... That's, and, and that's why you know, they've got a day job. They, they make really good money, but they're wanting to place their, their money in a nest egg like real estate, like commercial, like, like, like self-storage, like um, mobile home parks and like multifamily. But they now are understanding. I'm starting to see folks that are now understanding, okay, I've got to readjust my expectations coming out of the gate. And that's, that's, that's really important. Absolutely. 
But and, the and question I, is, are you valuing the cash flow or are you seeing the value of the cash flow? And that may right. sound like a puzzling question, but the value of the cash flow is much more important because of the value formula in commercial real estate. And I know we're running way over on time, but the value formula is powerful. It says that the $1 uh, you can increase your revenues per month mm -hmm. uh, means $12 a year. And if you divide income by cap rate, that $12 by, let's say, 6%, that's a $200 increase in value of the asset, all derived from $1 of monthly cash flow. That's powerful. And when you take leverage, that leverage is at 60% you know, leverage, that $200 value became something like $500 value to the investor's equity. Right. Wow. Where right. else can you get that? No, oh, exactly. And that, and that is, you hit the nail on the head there the value of real estate, commercial real estate in terms of how, and this goes back to financing, the American banks value commercial real estate as a business. And so if you increase NOI by $1, you increase the value of the business exponentially by two, three, four, five 5% based on you know, your cap rate. Right. Um, and, and that is where true wealth is created over the long term. And then you add in all these other complexities like 1031s and all that sort of stuff. And that's how you continue to grow wealth over 15, 20, 30 years time. So absolutely. Well, mate, look, I know we've been running well over time, uh, but I do want to get you to give me your top five investing tips. You ready to dive into it? I'm ready. All right, mate, mate what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? You know, I'm a type A fast driven, uh, high, highly driven person, but I try to spend uh, the first hour of every day just quietly meditating and praying and just, uh, I, I've been doing that for over 30 years. So that's my first habit I would uh, run out. Love it. Love it. Take, taking a bit of, bit, of, bit of me time at the beginning of the day before the, yes. uh, we're switching on the email. <laughs> yep. Uh, who has been the most influential person in your career to date? So my father wasn't an entrepreneur, but he was an amazing man. And so I would just say my father, because he was a man of integrity, he always did what's right, even when it hurt him and even when it hurt the company, because he was a company man uh, dealing with unions and he would actually defer to the unions when he knew they were right. And it always paid off for him. And he was beloved by the company and his uh, employees as well. Awesome stuff. Uh, I think many, uh, you can, you can get a sense for who's had really good upbringings from you know, influential parents. And I'm sitting in the same boat. My, 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 both my parents are extremely, my, my first and only mentors, um, not only, but my first mentors in life. So right. good stuff. What is the most influential tool in your business today, whether it be a software or hardware? Actually, uh, it is called the 411, and you're in Austin, Texas, and Gary Keller came up with this uh, methodology of time management. He outlines it in the book, The One Thing, and um, uh, the 411 and the, uh, the One Thing community of, uh, uh, that, that they've created with Jeff Woods and Jay Papazan has been the most valuable thing that I've followed to dramatically increase my productivity. And what does the 411 stand for? Uh, 411, it's basically a goal setting to the now system. And basically you take, you do your priorities uh, basically on what, you know, uh, one year goals, your four weeks per month goal, and then your daily goals. And um, the, the um, so it's uh, four weeks, one month, one year plan. Got it. Got it. Love it. Love it. Really do love it. I have to read that book. Um, in one sentence or one word, what is the biggest failure in your career today? And what did you learn? I've had a bunch of failures that were all surrounding the difference between investing and speculating. You know, investing is when you, your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. So I did dumb things like put money in wildcat oil wells that were going to have a hundred X return. And of course, they had zero return typically. And I, I failed to realize that, you know, low risk, low return, high risk, not necessarily high return. It's equally high chance of losing your money. And so all the main losses I've had was because of that mistake. Love it. I think it's a really important you know, underlying theme of today's show. So, um, mate, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to get their hands on their, your book. They want to just be in your sphere. Where do they go? 
They can get a hold of us at wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, capital C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. And they can get my book on Amazon. I've got a book uh, called The Perfect Investment, but I've got a new book coming out on self-storage investing before the end of 2019 as well. Awesome. I'm going to hold you that to that, that goal because <laughs> right. it's always get the, getting those books out of bloody tough, but uh, good, good stuff, mate. Um, look, thank you so much for dropping by. Uh, I really just want to quickly summarize today's show. I think we've covered a lot here. I've spoken a lot, but I, I want to just, you know, what I've learned from you, Paul is, and knowing you personally as well, your ability to, to, to have failures, but look at it and, and, and grow from that. I think your ability to, niche and pivot you know you, you thought you were going to be an operator you're going to now get into you're, you're into the, the capital raising side and focusing on what you're really good at and then in and around valuing deals and and what you're seeing in the market today and how investors expectations need to to adjust because um we're not in we're not we're not five years ago where you're doubling people's money and and i think you've you've brought a lot of common sense investing approach to this conversation today and uh uh, did, did I leave anything out? Do you want to add anything more before we, before we wrap up? No, I think that really covers it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was an honor. Well, thank you so much, mate. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. All right. Thanks, Reed. Well, there you have it. Another jam-packed episode full of some incredible cracking and actionable steps. Um, and I want to thank Paul for coming on the show. If you do have any questions for Paul, please reach out to him. All the show, all his contacts uh, information will be up on the show notes at my website at reedgoosens.com. I want to thank you again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about on this show, continuing to grow your financial IQ. We're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life. <laughs>